0: You are listening to City Church Manchester.
1: We are a church that invites everyone to enjoy Christ for the glory of God. If we can serve you in any way, then visit our website at citychurchmanchester.org
0: to find out more.
1: Well, just before Ralph uh, comes up to speak to us, we're going to be uh, opening God's Word. We're going to be looking at Luke chapter 18, verses 1 to 8. That's Luke chapter 18, verses 1 to 8. In the Blue Church Bibles, that's page 1051. And if you're new, you're joining us relatively at the beginning of a a new series looking at the kingdom of God from Luke's gospel. So Luke chapter 18, verses 1 to 8. Then Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. He said, in a certain town, there was a judge who neither feared God nor cared what people thought. And there was a widow in that town who kept coming to him with the plea, grant me justice against my adversary. For some time he refused but finally he said to himself even though I don't fear God or care what people think yet because this widow keeps bothering me I will see that she gets justice so that she won't eventually come and attack me. And the Lord said listen to what the unjust judge says. And will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? I tell you, he will see that they get justice and quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? Great,
0: thank you so much, Matt. And hello, everyone. It's great to be with you and to be able to bring this next portion Uh, of Luke's gospel to you. Uh, Let me pray for us. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, thank you for what Josh has just sung off. What an incredible friend we have. You call us friends, and you invite us to come to your Father, our Father, in prayer. We pray, Lord, that you would speak now to us, that we would speak rightly to you in prayer. Amen. Well, we live in stressful, stressful times, don't we? Uh, it's well documented that this is one of the most stressful seasons uh, that's been around for a very long time. Uh, whether it be stress on the world stage, you know, the events in Ukraine, or, or soaring prices. Or, or stress in our workplace. Uh, maybe at the moment you're cramming for exams. Or, or, or maybe you're experiencing office politics and you just don't know how to navigate it. Or, or maybe your boss is just putting pressure after pressure after pressure on you. Uh, maybe the stress you're experiencing is back at home. Constant squabbles with your housemates. Or, or just... Just argument after argument with your spouse. Maybe the stress you're experiencing is is in your walk with Jesus. Maybe there's that overwhelming sense of guilt that you feel and you wake up with every morning because of that sin you return to again and again and again. All that stress mounts up, doesn't it? And you know how stress works, yeah? Yeah. So there's this thing, and the stress builds and, builds and builds and builds and builds and builds and builds until the thing breaks. Until we break. And you know, the only way to deal with stress when stress comes. When stress is applied to a thing, the only way to deal with it is to put something under it, to strengthen it, to support it. Well, that's what we're going to be thinking about today. As we look at the parable that Matt just read for us, we're in Luke's gospel, and it's a continuation of what Matt was looking at with us last week. Uh, just cast your eyes back to chapter 17 verse 20. Jesus was asked the question there by the Pharisees. They asked him, "Will, when will the kingdom of God come? And Jesus replied to the Pharisees, it would have shocked the Pharisees. They were expecting God's kingdom to come with great power as, as God's king came and squashed God's enemies. But Jesus says, don't Be so sure. Verse 21 of chapter 17, it won't be as you think. In fact, Jesus says, the kingdom of God, it is already among you. Jesus then turns from the Pharisees to the disciples, and he wants his disciples to understand that there is a now and a not yet about God's kingdom. The king, Jesus, he has already come. That is the now of God's coming kingdom. But, but the now of God's coming kingdom, it is unspectacular. And in it, Christians will suffer as they wait for the king's return in the not yet You know, Jesus' first disciples, they were used as candles and were burned in Nero's garden, just for entertainment. They were crucified upside down. They were sawn in two. They knew what it was like to experience stress, stress to the point of breaking. And this parable Jesus told, the parable of the persistent widow, was a parable for them. And you know, it's a parable for you too, as you experience stress and anxiety today. Uh, Let me tell you what I want to do today. It's very simple. First, we're going to go over the parable, have an overview of the parable. And then we're going to see that the parable asks us three questions. Three questions it asks of us today. So let's first deal with a parable. Uh, Now, it's important to say, let me try and understand. This is not going to work. It's just going to cause me stress. (laughs) Uh, Let's talk about parables. Parables are teaching tools. uh, And they're intended... You think a teaching tool makes something simpler, but the reality is, actually, in, in Jesus' parables, a lot of the time... The parables are given to make teaching harder, which makes the preacher's job harder. But not today. Today is a dream parable for a preacher. Because Dr. Luke, the author of this account of Jesus' life, he tells us the point of the parable right at the very start. So look at verse 1 with me. Luke says, Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them That they should always pray and not give up. That is Jesus' point in this parable. The point of the parable is to help his disciples to always pray and not give up. Look at the parable. It starts there was a judge in a certain town. Now, Now, there's nothing surprising about that, there were lots of judges in lots of towns. But take a look at his description in verse 2, just over the page. It's repeated in verse 4, so we know this detail is important. The judge neither feared God nor cared what people thought. Now, if the judge had feared God, he, he would have known that one day he'd give an account before God for his judgments. So he would have judged justly. If if the man had been concerned about people, if he'd been concerned about his reputation in the public sphere, he would have judged justly because he wouldn't want to be embarrassed. But this judge didn't give a damn about either, which meant, verse 6, that he was unjust. He was corrupt. Justice before this man was whatever you were willing to pay for it. And look at who it is who stands before him. A widow. Now we need to grasp something about the first century context here. It was a a man's world in the first century. So if a woman had a problem, she'd need to find a man to take her case for her. She'd need either her father or her husband. But this woman had neither. She was penniless, she was powerless, and she had no one to protect her. Nothing to offer. And so look at what she does. It's there in verses four and five. Uh, The judge wakes up one morning, he gobbles down his cornflakes, he flings on his judicial robes, and he heads Out the door, where immediately he's confronted by a woman. Please, please, sir, give me justice against my adversary. Leave me alone, he says. And he rushes off. He he gets to the courthouse, starts to climb the steps up to the courthouse, and she's there. She says, please, please, judge, help me. He, He just elbows past her, rushes through the courtroom doors, goes up to courtroom one, and starts the case. He's hearing a tax evasion case, and the court clerk reads out the charges, and just as he's reading out the charges, a woman in the public gallery pipes up, judge, judge, give me justice against my adversary. Bailiff, remove her, he says. And after a long morning of hearings, the judge retires, and he starts to unwrap his deli sandwich he bought in the way. And as he does, he finds a note stuck on it saying, Please help me. After a long day, the judge returns home. He walks in through the front door. He sees his wife standing there and says, I've got a whole long list of messages. Some woman who wants some justice from you. He's had enough. So he just heads straight upstairs to the bedroom. He says, I'm going to take a nap. Five minutes later, on the door, it's his wife. You've got to come down. There's a woman at the door. She wants justice from you. The judge says, tell us to come back tomorrow, which she very quickly regrets because the next day she's back at the door. Verse 3, the widow kept coming to the unjust judge. And look at how he responds in verse 5. Because this widow keeps bothering me, I will see that she gets justice, so that she won't eventually come and attack me. The widow has badgered the unjust judge into giving her what she wants. Now now look at what Jesus says, verse 6. Consider this parable. Listen to what the unjust judge says, and will not God bring about justice? For his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night, will he keep putting them off? Now this is confusing, isn't it? Is Jesus Jesus really comparing God to an unjust, corrupt judge? And is he really saying... That prayer is all about badgering God into giving us what we want. Is that it? We know Jesus is holding out this widow as an example of someone who has persevered. Verse 1 tells us that. But this parable is not really about a comparison. Some parables are like that. Some parables... They expect you to see the similarities, like like the parable of the sower or or the parable of the lost son. You're supposed to draw the similarities between us and characters in the parable. But here, the focus is on the contrast between God and the character in the parable. It's an argument from the lesser to the greater. Let, Let me give you an example to illustrate that. Suppose I bake you... A chocolate fudge brownie. Do you like chocolate fudge brownie? Yeah? Imagine I bake it for you and it tastes absolutely incredible. Okay? How much more fantastic would that chocolate fudge brownie be if it was baked by Mary Berry? Do you see? It's from the lesser baker... To the master baker, Mary Berry. That, that is what is going on here. The emphasis is on the contrast between God and the unjust judge in the parable. And I think the parable asks three questions of us today. Three questions about our praying. Three questions we're going to focus the rest of our time on. And the first one is this. Hear this. What does how you pray reveal about your view of God. Just think about that. Imagine. Imagine that someone who, who doesn't know you and doesn't know God was to be in the room as you pray to God tomorrow morning and you're praying out loud. Imagine that they were there, and then imagine that they were asked afterwards to describe the person that they thought you were praying to based upon what you said to them. What what do you think they'd say? Well, he sounds a bit distant, a bit aloof. Sounds like someone they don't really like very much. Sounds a bit weak, a bit powerless. Sounds unkind, unreliable. It sounds like someone who needs to be badgered into doing stuff, cajoled into to giving what you ask for. Someone you don't quite trust. Someone you simply go through the motions with but really expect to sort things out yourself. Someone you're scared of. Look, The whole point of Jesus' parable was to contrast God with the unjust judge. The judge was unjust and unfair. He did what suited him, and he couldn't care less how it impacted others. God, on the other hand, he always judges fairly and always judges impartially. How do we know that? Well, it drove him to send his son to die in our place. That is the event that lies at the heart of the Christian message. If you're here today and you're not yet a Christian, this is what it's all about. God the Son, Jesus came into our world to die in our place, taking the punishment we deserve for our rebellion against God. Have you put your trust in that message yet? Well, why did he do it? Out of love, yes. But the Bible also insists in Romans chapter 3 that God did it because of his justice. Because he left sins that had been committed beforehand unpunished. God is so committed to righting wrongs, to bringing about justice, verse 6, that he sent his own son to die in our place, the most horrific death, if only we trust him. Shouldn't that change the way we pray? We live in a world littered with injustice, whether it be historic racial injustice that never gets addressed, child abuse where the victim never sees their day in court, persecution of churches by hostile governments where there's no let-up, or even those frequent situations where someone wrongs us And there's nothing we can do to put it right. It's tempting just to wring our hands and lament our helplessness. It's tempting even to blame God. But we should pray. Pray because God is passionately committed to justice. Pray because God has promised that justice will one day be done. God is just. That shapes the way we pray. Secondly, God is loving. You know, there was no relationship between the widow and the judge. She meant absolutely nothing to the judge. The only reason that he did anything for her was to get her off his back. How different it is with God. God is abounding in love. Two weeks ago, we were thinking about what that meant. And we saw that if you really love someone, if you really, really love someone... It means giving yourself away for them. And that is exactly what God has done. He gave himself away for us in sending his son Jesus into the world. That is the God that we pray to. But sometimes we need to be reminded of that, don't we? Princess Margaret The Queen's sister, she lived something of a wild life. Give us a nod if you've watched The Crown. Anyone watch The Crown? If you have, you'll know about Princess Margaret's wild, wild living. Now, she did an interview uh, shortly before her death, and in that interview, she was asked whether she was one of the people who had dreams about the Queen. You know, we've all had them, haven't we? Dreams about the Queen. And she said, Yes, yes, I do sometimes dream about the Queen. And so the interview asked, Well, what happens when the Queen appears in your dream? And she said, it's always the same dream. I've done something wrong, and the queen furiously disapproves of it. But Princess Margaret said, well, but that's just my mind playing up. She continues like this. She says, the queen is not, in fact, a censorious person, and she's never criticized me personally in waking life, only in my dreams. When I wake up after such a dream, I feel utterly wretched, as if I've been shut out of the love of God. I wake much later than the Queen does, but when I've had such a dream, I have to ring her up, even if it is mid-morning and she is at work. I simply pick up the receiver, ring, and she says, hello. I say hello and then ring off. All is well. I hear the voice. I know that I still have her love. Sometimes we need to be reminded that we still have God's love. Every time we look at Jesus, it's like having picked up the phone and receiving that hello from God the Father. And we're urged To approach him confidently, joyfully, expectantly, because he loves us. What does how you pray reveal about what you believe about God? Next up, what does it reveal about your view of yourself? Now, the contrast here with the parable is a little bit more complicated because there is one big similarity between us and the widow. We come empty-handed. We have no bargaining chip with God. But, But that is where the similarity ends. And there are two massive contrasts. Contrast number one. The widow meant nothing to the unjust judge. Whereas Christians, look at verse 7, we are God's chosen ones. Jesus is talking here about the doctrine of election. The, The truth that's taught again and again and again in the Bible, that before time even began, God chose Christians to be his own. Now, people struggle to get their heads around this. How can that be fair that God chooses people? Now, I don't have time to go into that today, but what I want to show is how gloriously practical this is in the area of prayer. I mean, think about it. I became a Christian 26 years ago. Now, now if I think 26 years ago... I chose Jesus. Ralph chose Jesus. Then there's always going to be this gnawing anxiety in the back of my head. Well, well, yes, I chose Jesus, but did he really want me? I mean, it was my choice after all. Maybe God wasn't as into me as I was into him. But if the Bible teaches... That before time began, God chose me, God chose Ralph. Well, that changes everything, doesn't it? God is 100% committed to me. No question, no caveat, unconditional. I mean, shouldn't that change the way we pray? We come with nothing, that's true. But we come as children to a father who is totally, irrevocably committed to us. That's contrast number one. God knows us and he has chosen us. Contrast number two remember what we saw about the widow. The widow was all alone. She had no one to fight her case for her. But we have an advocate. That's exactly what Jesus told his disciples. It's recorded for us in John chapter 14, verse 16. Jesus calls himself an advocate. And that's a special Greek word which was used to describe people who represented people in court. A court Advocates. In the US Civil War, a young soldier fighting for the Union Army lost both his father and his brother in the fighting. His sister was back home with his elderly mother and they were in desperate need. They needed to do the spring planting in time so they could reap a harvest. So he went to Washington, D.C. to go to see the president to ask for an exemption from military service. When the soldier arrived, he walked up the steps of the White House, and he asked to speak to the president. A young official said, you can't speak to the president. He's far too busy to speak with you. Go back to the front line and go and fight. So dejected, the soldier left the White House. Unsure about how he'd break the bad news to his family. As the soldier was sitting on a park bench, a young boy came up to him and said, why are you so unhappy? What's wrong? The soldier turned to him and poured out his heart through tear-stained eyes, explaining how his father and brother had been killed and how he was the only one who could look after his family back on a farm. The boy looked at the soldier and said, follow me. And he took him by the hand and he led him through the back door of the White House, through the kitchen up through the main rooms, past the guards, past the army generals, past the high-ranking officials, sat outside the Oval Office. And then he walked into the Oval Office, didn't knock, just went straight on through. And there, stood behind the desk, was the president, Abraham Lincoln. Lincoln looked up from his battle plans and said... What can I do for you, Tad? And the boy turned and said, Father, this man needs to speak to you. That is the access we can have to God in prayer. But because of Jesus, we get to call God Father. Friends, do you use, do you enjoy that access that you have to God? In prayer. Uh, The final question this parable asks us is this one. What does your prayer reveal about your view of the future? Uh, Let me be transparent with you. I have found this, this passage really hard in my preparation, really convicting. Do you want to know why? Well, I meet up every three weeks with a gospel coach. His name is Tom, and basically his job is to meet up with me and to help me to be a good, effective, and godly leader of myself, of my family, of the church. Anyway, each time we meet, I raise the latest challenge that I've been facing. So maybe it's a new building opportunity we've got. Maybe it's the question of how do we launch the Northern Gospel Project. Maybe it's a question of how do we raise up more leaders within City Church? Or or, or how do I be a better husband or a better dad? And every time I raise a new issue, Tom says to me, Ralph, have you prayed about it? And my answer almost always is, sort of. Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that I don't pray. I, I do pray regularly for my family for every member of city church, for for the people who aren't yet Christians who God has put in my life. But the thing I've realized is that in times of stress, my instinctive response is not to immediately pray. Why? Well, I think it comes down to this. I don't expect to receive the response I want Immediately. And I assume I can get the response I want much more easily by depending on myself. You see, that is the problem of living in the now and the not yet. God's answer to us in this now is sometimes wait. And you know, it is sometimes no. Because in the now... What I want and what God wants is not perfectly aligned. Our passage ends in a really strange way. Did you notice it? When we're in times of stress and anxiety, we're often tempted to to ask the question, God, God, why won't you do something about this? When we face those stressful situations, we put God in the spotlight and say, why won't you act? But look at what Jesus says, verse 8. When Jesus returns, he says, Christians will get justice quickly. But, verse 8, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Do you see what Jesus does? He he turns the tables on us. And it's puzzling, isn't it? Because the the parable, it has been all about prayer. That's what Luke tells us in verse 1. It's about prayer. And yet here at the end, Jesus starts talking about faith. Why? Well, I think he wants us to see that prayer and faith are inextricably linked. In prayer, we say, I can't, but God, you can. In prayer, we say, I trust your timetable, not my own. In prayer, we say, Lord, I need you. The story is told about a, a small fishing village in Scotland. One day, all the fishermen. They were out on their boats, and a huge storm swelled up on the sea. There was panic. Waves were lapping over the sides of the boats, heading for shore. And as land came into sight, the fishermen looked out at the harbour wall and saw that it was lined with women. One fisherman pointed to the other. He said, look, look, Bob, Bob, there's your wife, Barbara. And another pointed, Jeff, Jeff, look, I can see your wife there. There's Sharon. Each of the fishermen was welcomed on shore by their wife, all except one. Looking despondent, this fisherman trudged back to his fisherman's lodge. He rang the doorbell, and his wife opened the door and said, Where have you been? I've been waiting for you. And the fisherman looked at her, and he said, Yes, but you were not Watching. In your stresses and your anxieties, are you merely waiting for Jesus? Or are you watching for him? Are you praying? Remember what we saw about stress at the start. It puts pressure on you. It bends and bends and bends you until you break. The, the only way to withstand that pressure, whether it be from ill health or relationship breakdown or loneliness or even outright persecution, the only way to withstand that pressure is if something solid comes beneath you to hold you up and to support you. Prayer, repeated Persevering prayer is the means by which we rest on Christ in all of our stress and anxiety. It is the way we watch. It is how we, verse 8, exercise faith as we await his return. But it just sounds too hard, doesn't it? Too much of a slock. I can't just just, just watch. I, I want to do something. I want to make a difference. I want to sort the situation out myself. What do you think? That word for chosen one, it appears in just one other place in Luke's gospel. It's in Luke chapter 23, verse 35. Jesus is hanging there on the cross. And the leaders among the people they are sneering at him saying, "He saved others, let him save himself if he is God's Messiah, the chosen one." That they're mocking Jesus. Do something, you mighty one. But Jesus The chosen one does nothing. Actually, I don't think that's quite right. I bet you anything that as Jesus hung on that cross, he was praying. Leaning hard on his father. Because he knew the now and the not yet. He knew that God's purpose now was for him, the chosen one, to suffer in our place. That was the only way that he could save us. That was the only way that he could return in the not yet, not simply as our judge, but as our saviour as well. And as Jesus' lungs were crushed, literally, by the strain and stress of the cross, He exercised faith in God's perfect purpose and plan. When he returns, will he find faith on the earth? Will he find faith in you? Let me pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much. that you are the perfect example of one who persevered in prayer to your Father. Thank you that as we face the stresses and strains of our lives, you don't ask us to be strong. You don't even ask us to be courageous. You just tell us to lean all the harder on you, putting our trust wholly in all that you are for us. All matter.